0: When you have found success as a part of the system you are incentivized to see things through that lens and it becomes and and you have trust in the system so you can't you can't conceive of you can't see the value of something that is inherently outside of the system or counter to the system and that's what bitcoin is
1: Hey everybody! Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence podcast. This week I have on Jesse Myers. Jesse, welcome.
0: Thanks for having me, Joe. It's good awesome. to finally meet you in person or through a video thing.
1: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know you're Creesus on Twitter, so you know some of the audience listening may be familiar with your work. Um, but if they aren't, uh, maybe like tell us a little bit about who you are, what your background is. And why you were synonymous on Twitter for, for so long, and now you're more public?
0: Yeah. Um, so I was a management consultant um, in my twenties, uh, and then got a MBA at Stanford, um, and heard a fair bit about like Ethereum at Stanford, you know, half a dozen years ago now. Um, and got interested in cryptocurrencies because of that. Uh, ended up starting a, a small um, cryptocurrency hedge fund, um, and then as I got deeper down the rabbit hole, I realized that all these altcoins, um, these technological innovations, uh, amounted to nothing, uh, and that really was all about you know I, I, I came in with the lens like this was about technology um, in the same way that the internet uh, and in the successful strategy for investing in the internet was, you know, placing bets on innovative new techno- technological breakthroughs that would push the envelope forward in some way. And that's how I approached cryptocurrencies at first. as I got deep enough, I realized this isn't about, um, innovative technology. This is about money and, you know, that led me down the Bitcoin rabbit hole of learning about money, about the history of money, about what makes good money. You know, learning the Austrian economics side of things, which I never learned in, at Stanford Business School. You only learn about Keynesian economics. Um, and so I became a Bitcoiner. And, uh, you know, when you have that epiphany, that orange pill revelation, you want to write about it, you want to talk about it, you want to study it. Um, and so I started contributing, you know, my skill set as a management consultant, um, which is you know, a certain toolkit of how to analyze uh, ambiguous problems and and get rough, you know, quantifications of things that are hard to quantify. Um, I started doing that um, in the Bitcoin scene on, on Bitcoin Twitter mostly, and um, seemed to you know, stumbled into carving out a bit of a. Uh, space for myself as a, as a Bitcoin analyst slash educator slash writer. Um, and that's what I've been doing the last few years. And only recently, uh, a few, couple months ago, I decided it was time to uh, be public with my identity. Um, basically that my career had become so focused on Bitcoin that there was no point in keeping my Bitcoin world separate from my uh, you know, real identity. So it was time And, uh, yeah, and then that catches us up to the present.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't have the management consulting background, but I had a similar path of being synonymous on Twitter for a while. And then eventually, once I started working in the space full time, I decided to bring out my actual name.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, And I remember, uh, we talked about that on, on Twitter DMs, uh, a few years ago when you were deciding whether or not to be more public or remain a Um So I'm glad you did that.
1: Yeah, likewise. Um, I definitely wanna dive in further on like, you know, how you originally got into Bitcoin, because I remember, I think it was you, you and I talked about before how you, you fell for like, one of the coins back in 2017 that was really popular was Nano and they basically promised like, infinite transactions per second And I think a lot of people, including myself, you know, when I was originally getting into the crypto space, I like, I was like, okay, Bitcoin's cool, but it's obviously too slow. It doesn't work well. It's not scalable. Something like Nano is going to be the future. And, you know, the price was pumping a lot in uh, 2017. So I was really excited. I'm sure you were too. Um, Why did you, why do you think you originally fell for, for that narrative at first? I know you talked about like it was, you were interested in the technology, but is there, you know, can you dive deeper into that idea?
0: Yeah, I think, um, I think at that time I was thinking about use cases and trying, trying to understand what different coins covered in terms of what you're ultimately looking for with a digital money. And You know, nano was really like the last thing that I was, that I could make a case for in my head. And that was because I hadn't yet fully wrapped my head around the lightning network, um, and how, and ultimately the lightning network creates fully checks the box on, um, Bitcoin being possible, uh, to fully satisfy what's needed as a medium of exchange platform or, or currency. Um, and that's because, you know, the lightning network enables very cheap, near instantaneous, um, transactions. And that's what you need. If you're going to go buy something in a store, you need that thing to process immediately. And with, you know, um, on, you know, base layer of Bitcoin, it takes 10 minutes and that's not feasible, um, for, you know, for buying stuff in a store. So, you know, w- when I was interested in Nano, I think I think I was coming around to the fact that, okay, store of value, Bitcoin has that covered, but I don't think it can satisfy the world's transaction demands, um, you know, on the base layer. And, and I had misconceptions about how feasible uh, Lightning was in terms of scaling. Um, and so Nano represented this technological innovation that um, seemed to satisfy that, that, that other big um, use case bucket of, you know, so, so store value, fine, that's Bitcoin, but what about medium of exchange? What's going to win there? What are the properties that are going to win there? And so I was, I was excited about, you know, the technology there, the innovation that I perceived to be there still not yet fully understanding that, that money works in different ways that you first have to be, you know, you have to establish intersubjective value within a society uh, of everyone values or enough people value this thing, this commodity, this collectible such that people know that some people value this thing, and then therefore everyone values that thing because they know that there's somebody who will pay you for that. And so suddenly you've gone from a collectible to a store of value asset. And so, you know, this is the history of money with with commodity monies in the past, with shell money, with beads, with gold, silver. Um, you have to have intersubjective value, which means that pe- you know that people value it, and so therefore you value it. And Bitcoin has is is currently still bootstrapping through that evolutionary process. Um, But once it has, you know, and for some people, it already satisfies that. Like I already view it as my store of value. So do you. Um, But most people don't view it that way yet. And so it'll make its way through the adoption curve in terms of store of value. But for the people who already view it as a store of value, it becomes a logical thing to. Transact in. Uh, it can be a medium of exchange if both parties value it, uh, and then you just need the the you need the ability to transact quickly, cheaply, um, using that currency that y- you mutually value, and that's what the Lightning Network or other side chains enables with Bitcoin. From a philosophical point of view, um, and so you know the Nano idea was a, a cool. Technology that didn't that skipped over the bootstrapping of uh, intersubjective value that's required to m- make a stable currency a, a commodity that people mutually value and then therefore are willing to hold and therefore it, it you know retains its value because people are holding it anyway so I think Nano was the the last the last uh, bastion of my belief that there could be a multi-coin future because Bitcoin didn't satisfy all the use cases of digital money. Um, but as I got further into studying m- money um, and studying what the Lightning Network can do, it became clear that, nope, you know, the, the Lightning Network and, and other sidechains make everything that you want in a digital money possible through Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, I think that was very well said. I mean, Bitcoin's basically on this quest to become the most marketable and, and saleable good. And it's kind of doing that because of, like you said, of its unique monetary properties that humans are just naturally converging on. You know, it's immutable, verifiable scarcity, the visibility, portability, fungibility, et cetera. So I think you made some fantastic points there. And it makes sense as to why, you know, there is really no place for – second best or, or, nano or other tokens like that. It just makes sense that you would naturally converge on, on one tool and that tool that's the best tool is Bitcoin. Yeah. And, and there
0: will probably always be some marginal use cases at the very fringes that Bitcoin doesn't directly incorporate, but as long like any use case that becomes sufficiently, um, in demand that somebody will bother to integrate that functionality into a side chain on Bitcoin, you know, so that, you know, at the, at the very fringe, there will always be some things that live off of Bitcoin, but if they become sufficiently, uh, significant, they will be incorporated into Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's something that I've been actually diving into re- to more recently. And I don't know if you've done too much of a deep dive into it, but side chains, like rootstock specifically liquid is, you know, debatable whether it's, I guess it's a side chain because it's more of like a federation. And there's like, uh, the truth guy who came out with like BIP 300, which is a way to like make Bitcoin side chains more trustless. You may have no comment on this. I don't know how deep into looking yeah, into you're more Bitcoin technical than things. I am
0: Joe. <laughs>
1: Fair enough. Well, we'll skip that one then. And and I want to talk about, uh, one thing that, that you mentioned on Twitter, uh, Basically, you made it like an interesting tweet about how during the past cycle, uh, Bitcoin demand on FTX and potentially even other exchanges was basically used to bid up altcoins instead. What do you mean by that? Can you expand on that idea?
0: Yeah. So the, the details of exactly how the mechanics worked with FTX are still a little murky, but it looks like, you know, so if... Um, if an FTX customer wanted to buy Bitcoin, they wired their money uh, in and bought Bitcoin. And then they thought that was it, right? They thought that their Bitcoin was sitting there for them on FTX, but it turns out that FTX loaned customer deposits that, that Bitcoin um, to Alameda, their related party hedge fund. And Alameda's, uh, Sold that Bitcoin in exchange for altcoins, um, and so you know if you bought Bitcoin on FTX, your money was actually used. It, it was it was used to buy Bitcoin, then sell Bitcoin, and and then at the end of that chain, bid up altcoins. So uh, you know we FTX's self-attested financials, which I think may or are actually probably wrong, and we'll find out what the true financials are later. But the self-attested ones is um, that FTX has $1.4 billion in Bitcoin obligations uh, and and zero Bitcoin on their balance sheet, Um, meaning that that $1.4 billion worth of Bitcoin uh, is what they owed to customers that wasn't there anymore. Um, and that amounts to 80,000 Bitcoin and, you know, it's only been a year since the peak. It's only been, you know, so you assume that that, um, th- those, that problem that those obligations popped up in, in the last year. Um, and during this having era, uh, miners big, collective Bitcoin mining is mining 330,000 Bitcoin a year. So 80,000 is about a quarter of that. So for FTX to have 1.4 billion dollars and 80,000 Bitcoin um, paper obligation with no reserves to fulfill that means that they quote unquote created 80,000 Bitcoin out of thin air and you know on paper. Um, and that means that they were, "Quote unquote," increasing the amount of Bitcoin that was mined in the last year by twenty-five percent, and they're probably not the only people to do that. And in fact, I think that that eighty thousand Bitcoin number is low. I think that I think that once the um, bankruptcy team figures out what the true you know debts are, it'll be more than that. So maybe they maybe FTX alone accounted for doubling the current uh, Bitcoin mining um, you know, worldwide over the last year, or maybe it was a few different entities that collectively doubled the amount of Bitcoin mined in the last year, quote unquote. Um, so when I look at that, I, that stands out to me as a major driver for why the price is so low right now. You know, How are we down at 16,000 when we've never gone below the prior cycle high before? And then you introduce this. This it looks like just, you know, facts here that uh, paper Bitcoin was printed uh, in the last year that made it so that you know there was more Bitcoin going out into the market to meet incoming demand, uh, or so people thought. Uh, and that means more supply, but no change in demand, and that means that the price gets driven down um in in this free market of bitcoin so i think that that i think we will find that this paper bitcoin has been suppressing bitcoin's price over this last year in particular and driving it down lower than it should have gone at this point point. and it'll be very interesting when that pressure um is no longer in place that downward pr- pressure of paper bitcoin being created is relieved um you know we might be a ball underwater in terms of where the current price equilibrium is at, and that price equilibrium may be based on, you know, two x the actual mining going on. And you take away half of that, where does the price equilibrium go to? Here's hoping that's you know a, a thing that plays out over the next twelve months.
1: Yeah. So, so I guess your view is that the price is lower now because of that paper Bitcoin. Do you think that? the bull market last year, like we'd never really had that blow off top, that traditional Bitcoin, you know, parabolic bull bull runs. And then do you think that this had to do with that lack of blow off top too, or is that just a coincidence?
0: Yeah, I think that the lack of blow off top is related to other factors in the market. Um, And I'm not really sure how much of it. So part of it is that we, we had a bimodal top. We had two different tops. We had the Spring 2021 top. Um, And then, incidentally, 12 months later, we had the uh, Celsius Three Arrows Capital blow up. Um, 12 months seems to be the magic number in in Bitcoin because it was 12 months from the 2017 top to the bottom in late 2018. 12 months from the first bimodal top to the Celsius Three Arrows blow up. Um, And then we had the second. Bimodal top um, a year ago, and now we have this latest blow up with FTX. You know, twelve months later, um, I, why we got the bimodal top is probably because of the China mining, mining ban, um, sort of short circuiting the flywheel effect of that develops a mania um, at a top, and so that that right there kind of muddied the bull market top. I was expecting it to blow off top. And then we didn't because of the China man- mining ban. And then it felt like we were coming back and we were going to break into price discovery again and late last year. And then we didn't because it, it, in, in both of these cases, there, there, were high, uh, there was high lo- leverage longs had accumulated and high funding rates had resulted from that. So there was a large incentive to short Bitcoin. Or to hedge and collect the, the premium on that funding. Um, and so that might have created a ton of headwind um, in, in both of the bim- bimodal tops. But then, you know, this time last year, the Fed started to pivot to risk off for markets everywhere. And that kind of, you know, blew a cold wind uh, into crypto markets. So, there's a, several factors that I feel like added up to um, making it impossible for a classic blow-off top to happen. And I think that the the preponderance of leverage and, and what that meant in terms of the funding markets probably means that we won't see blow-off tops in the future. I think that, that that's a, mature, a maturation of market mechanics that you know, now there's a, um, a way for speculators to take the, the opposite bet, take the opposite side um, and collect the premiums. And that uh, that I think will will be a force that steps in whenever the market gets too bullish or too bearish going forward. And that inherently rounds tops and bottoms more than we've seen in the past.
1: Yeah, I, I I agree. I think that makes a lot of sense. I definitely think the China mining band played a decent role in, in preventing you know Bitcoin from reaching maybe like a hundred thousand because I think it's probably a lot of sell pressure from all the Chinese miners trying to sell their ASICs, sell all the Bitcoin that they mined, or and relocate all of their their you know infrastructure. And then at the same time, we saw a lot of capital in the U.S. flow not necessarily into Bitcoin, but Bitcoin mining at the end of last year when you know if it didn't make sense to mine a bunch of bitcoin maybe that capital would have flowed straight into bitcoin and bid it up to you know 100,000 plus but yeah the derivatives uh, futures and i, I yeah. also i
0: think played, and played a role to bring that back to ftx um, you know like why did why did solana do so well uh, was it that people who were buying bitcoin on ftx had their money routed to alameda and that was actually bidding up Solana instead. Like, it seems like that seems like altcoins took some of the demand flowing to Bitcoin, um, and that might have also helped prevent us reaching a hundred thousand.
1: Yeah, definitely agree. Um, so, kind of going back to the idea, that you were comparing the amount of Bitcoin that FTX basically claimed to have but didn't have to. The amount of bitcoin that miners are, are mining on a yearly basis do you think that bitcoin halvings act as catalysts towards bitcoin's parabolic bull runs or you know are markets efficient and are they priced and how do you think about this
0: yeah i i think that bitcoin is the single best um, refutation of the efficient market hypothesis um, because it is just supply and demand mechanics that have played out and are set to play out every four years. And yet the market hasn't priced that in because how do you price in increasing scarcity? How do you price in absolute scarcity? Um, you know, if there's an understanding gap, I think, um, that makes the efficient market hypothesis just, just fall away. It doesn't stand up in this instance because people can have all the information, um, and you would expect markets to incorporate that rationally, and yet there's an understanding gap. Um, maybe it's a, a lack of imagination from capital allocators of what happens when an asset has increasing scarcity because we we just have no prior examples of this in human history, um, short of uh, short of like um, a famous painter dying and suddenly Picasso's are worth a whole lot more because you know there's not going to be any more supply. Um, that's the only example we, of this. And yet Bitcoin has that every four years and um, it seems to surprise markets every time. Uh, I think it's no coincidence that 2020 we have a halving, 2016 we have a halving, 2012 we have a halving. And yet in the year following each of those instances, we had a major bull market. And, you know, Joe, you and I have talked about this on Twitter. It's kind of how I think the first instance of you, you found my work based on what I was putting out in 2020. Um, basically, calling that here comes a supply shock because here are the mechanics of what happens when you have in a perfectly free market, you have um, supply and demand supply going out into the market specifically so new new supply and you have net new demand coming into the market and those two forces have to find the price equilibrium where you know those two sides can clear and that's what Bitcoin does um, every four years it finds the right price equilibrium for that era of supply being mined every day And then all of a sudden you cut that supply being mined every day in half but demand doesn't get cut in half and the result is that over the next few weeks and months uh, the supply that is available for sale so you know supply that people are willing to sell at, at the current price or anywhere near it gets eaten through because there's not enough supply being created from miners so the available for sale supply gets chipped away at until there's suddenly a lot less of it um and then the only way to find more supply that can be made available for sale is for the price to drift upwards in order to, to unlock new supply to find sellers and so right there you you're seeing price discovery you're seeing you know um in the wake of this supply shock, Bitcoin is trying to find price equilibrium again. And then, of course, that's when human psychology steps in and um, amplifies that drift upwards. Uh, Bitcoiners get more bullish. They get excited. Here's the halving. Here it comes. Here's the bull market. Um, Speculators can't resist speculating. Uh, People take on leverage and that ends up you know, creating more demand um, and taking on debt to, to do that. Um, and it turns into uh, more and more demand amplifying this increasing uh, supply shortage. And the price goes parabolic into typically, a, um, or at least what we've seen in the past, a blow off top, and of course, this time we had that the funky dynamics that created a bimodal rounded top. Um, so yeah, I think that I think that the havings are the core engine of how Bitcoin's price appreciation happens, um, and that effect diminishes in time because the the amount of um, supply being no longer mined, each having it becomes a smaller percentage of the total existing supply however the psychology is still there and so it is a catalyst a, a moment in time that can generate a narrative and generate excitement um, even even when the you know the uh, mechanics of it Asymptotically decrease in terms of their impact, um, but you know f- we've seen for the the last twelve years that when it ha- when it has happened each time there's been a major impact, and each bull market has been less um, has s- seen smaller returns than than the previous ones, but still better than anything you're going to get in any other asset class because. I mean, from trough to peak, we had a 20 X in this last one. So maybe next time we get a a five or 10 X from trough to peak. And right now we're probably in the trough. So, um, the next halving is coming in 2024. It takes a year for that bull market to play out. So you're looking at a peak in, in 2025, probably, um, and, from this current trough? Is that a five or 10 X? I think it's at least a five X. And what other asset are you going to get a 500% return over a three year period?
1: Yeah. The efficient market hypothesis I think is, is really interesting because I feel like we have, you know, the Bitcoin segment, which has allocated, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of capital into Bitcoin. And then you have kind of everybody else So, like, obviously someone's wrong here because I kind of think that Bitcoin is, like, a binary outcome. It's either worth tens of trillions or it's worth zero. (laughs) So, it is interesting how that's the case. But also, I think markets, you know, markets are, like, the free markets are the most efficient way to price assets and price goods. So, I do think there is, like, some credibility to, like, the efficient market hypothesis. But I would say that maybe markets trend towards efficiency. And that's why Bitcoin is trended upward in the long run. And a lot of people can't explain it, but adoption, you know, in the long run continues to grow and grow.
0: Yeah. I I think that's a great distinction. I would have no problem with the efficient market hypothesis if it said that markets trend towards efficiency. Um, Of course, the, you know, strong and weak form efficient market hypothesis imply a much more instantaneous incorporation of information um yeah and i think that's that's human nature right is it takes us a few generations to figure out and move towards whatever model um has brought success for you know the last few generations and i think we see that with our like our um, the common recommendations about how to invest, how to build wealth that you know the boomers are telling millennials and zoomers here's how to here's how to succeed in life. you just you get a mortgage, you get it you get your job, get a mortgage and and you know put money in your 401k uh, And that's the model that worked over the last 40 years because we've had, because in 1981, interest rates were 15%, and we've trended down since then. And when you, when you decrease interest rates, you are changing the denominator on your discounted cash flow valuation models such that you drive up the valuation of assets. And so, yeah, if you invest in a 401k or, or um, a house um, during a period of decreasing interest rates you're going to see value growth in your portfolio. Um, And so that's, that's the model that worked in the past. And now that's what we're being told to do. And yet you and I know that that's not possible going forward. The we're already at zero interest rates. um, And we've taken on a massive debt burden as a nation and as a world something's got to give, um, and we're not going to see the same growth in asset values in traditional ac- asset classes like equities and real estate. Uh, and so you, you got to use your senses to, and think about, okay, what, where is the growth going to be? What's going to, what's going to fail and what will succeed, uh, looking forward And you know we we have to shake ourselves out of um, just following what worked for past generations and move towards what's going to work, you know, for this generation and the future generations. Um, And you know that means trying to get ahead of the efficient market hypothesis rather than being a um, rather than receiving the learned wisdom. Um, being smart enough to perceive, uh, what path to follow today, and then you get to be one of the examples of wisdom that gets passed down, you know, because we, we follow success. We follow the models that brought people success from past generations. And that's why you, you, you listen to the, the wealthy boomers and you say, okay, all right, I'll do what you guys did. Um, but that model's not going to work and you have to figure out what will work and that's why we're in bitcoin
1: yeah in a way it's 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 like the last 40 years has been finance on on easy mode and now it's you know kind of going to get hard and bitcoin is kind of this escape valve as you know you can't get the same returns in traditional asset classes so now we're resorting to this new money 2.0 technology um, kind of going off this idea you wrote a great article about why the yuppie elite dismiss Bitcoin. And this could be, I guess, either boomers or younger people that are in the top business schools in the world, work on Wall Street, work in management consulting. What's the sub- synopsis of, of, of that article that you wrote?
0: Yeah, I wrote that a few years ago um, and it resonated with a, a lot of people. I, I wasn't expecting it to, to do that. I, I was just sort of venting about my personal experience and it turns out a lot of people have this experience of trying to talk to their smart friends about Bitcoin and and the smart friends in particular are uninterested. Um, and you know, there's memes that have been made about like the, the smartest people like Bitcoin, the dumbest people like Bitcoin and the midwits are the ones that dislike Bitcoin. But I, I went to Stanford and I was around some of the smartest people, um, I've ever met and they're not interested in Bitcoin. So, uh, you know, I, I was trying to figure out for myself, what, what is the driver here? And I finally came up with, um, you know, it's, it's in part related to how smart you are. Um, but I think the bigger driver is how much trust you have in the system. Because I was finding that, you know, to, to be a Stanford MBA, to be an MBA, to be a professional of any kind a lawyer, doctor, you have to have faith in the system, have faith that if you just get through these hoops um, and, you know, you're a good actor, you, you uh, plug in and are a good worker, um, that you'll be rewarded. And And then they are rewarded and so you um, believe that the system works. Uh, and so I found that the successful folks that I knew um, were most uninterested in Bitcoin. And then when I was looking around in Bitcoin, I found that you know these people were smart, but they were very cynical, very skeptical about the system, about politics, about, Um, government about, you know, the incentives at the heart of, uh, institutions. And that, you know, created a two by two matrix for me as a, as a management consultant, you often do that, um, of, you know, one axis is, is, uh, intelligence and the other is trust in the system. And, in the two top corners, there's the yuppie elite, as I call them, the professionals who are high trust in the system and, and high intelligence, and then in the other top corner, there's um, the bitcoiners who are high intelligence and very low trust in the system. Um, and I think that that explains why, you know, a lot of people listening to this will, they've everyone has had that talk with some friend where, you know, they're a super smart person and they just don't see Bitcoin as, as viable or valid. Uh, and it's so frustrating. You you can't figure out why. And I think it's because, you know, when you have been, when you have found success as a part of the system, you are incentivized to see things through that lens and it becomes, and, and you have trust in the system, so you can't, you can't conceive of, you can't see the value of something that is inherently outside of the system or counter to the system. And that's what Bitcoin is. So um, I think that's why it resonated with so many people is it sort of put a, a mental model to this strange phenomenon of like the smartest people in our lives don't get Bitcoin but it's because they are the doctors and lawyers who have invested so much in the system. And Bitcoin is a, it requires them to question that. And that's just a hard sell.
1: Yeah, this was a really interesting article when I first read it, because I remember originally like diving deep into Bitcoin in, in 2017 and 2018, reading like the Nakamoto Institute from Pierre Richard and, and Bitstein and you know looking at the website and being like oh this is like some random weird blog but reading the articles and thinking oh like this actually makes a lot of logical sense like this is interesting and then i remember trying to like read anything possible as to you know why this could be wrong or this could not work and i couldn't really find find a, a really convincing argument and then. So, so I was like, ah, I'm just some random guy. Like, how could I have figured this out before, you know, people that are much more intelligent than even I am. And, and your article explained it to where, oh, actually it makes a lot of sense that these people wouldn't get it. You kind of really to get Bitcoin, you kind of have to have this very unique bias as to like how you perceive the world and that enables you to like grasp Bitcoin fairly quickly. And then the other people that are maybe very intelligent takes them a little bit longer, a lot more touches, or like you said, they have to lose more faith in the system, which I kind of feel like over the past two years has kind of been happening where, you know, whether it's things like COVID or, or other, you know, geopolitical events going on, people are losing more and more faith in the larger institutions that are all throughout the world. And maybe that's a trend that will continue as Bitcoin continues to rise.
0: Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it will, and I think speak, it speaks to that point you you made there of like people often refer to Bitcoin as like an intelligence test, and and it's it's not that it's a it's a question of how much time you have spent, you know, thinking about it or being exposed to how it could work. Um, it's not that hard to get, and so it doesn't really require you to be all that smart or all that, uh, you know, deep in economics. In fact, um, the more you have already learned about economics, the more you have to unlearn before you can start getting Bitcoin. Um, so I think it, you know, I think one of the things that, that people get hung up on is that same question of like, okay, Bitcoin seems incredible, but like, what am I missing? Why am I, how am I getting hoodwinked? Because surely there are smarter people that have figured this out first, and when I look around at my smart friends, they're not interested in Bitcoin. So how am I getting hoodwinked? And yet it's this—you know—I think the reality is that the smart people in your life in your life have not spent the time considering how Bitcoin could be right um, because they dismiss it right away. Um, to their detriment.
1: Yeah, I think that was another really telling aspect of it all for me. Listening to as I you know d- dove deeper into what Bitcoin is, trying to understand it from maybe an economics perspective and also from a technical perspective, hearing the very smart people speak about it on CNBC or Bloomberg, and then re- realizing that like they don't even really know what they're talking about necessarily. Like some things that like, they don't even understand like the very basics of how Bitcoin actually works. How can they actually have a pretty like informed opinion on what's going to happen to this over the next five to 10 years? Like they barely even understand it. And it's like you said, they just don't really care. They just immediately have dismissed it to begin with. And that's why that's, that's the opportunity, right? I mean, that's, that's it. Um, But yeah, one last question and then we'll wrap it up. Um, I always like to kind of end a lot of my, The podcast talking about how bitcoin looks in five to ten years or 20 to 30 years um do you believe in the idea of like hyper bitcoinization and like what does that even mean to you if if you do or if you don't
0: yeah i think we are living through hyper bitcoinization Uh, i think that there's a misconception that hyper bitcoinization will be some you know rapid one year transition or something like that but in in terms of you know, human history, this is already a crazy fast uh, rate of change. Uh, what Bitcoin has already done in 12, 13 years constitutes hyper-Bitcoinization. You just have to project that trend forward and, and see what that looks like. Because you know, some of the, the, the analysis that I like to do is taking stock of how early we are in the adoption curve you sometimes hear numbers like, oh, there's 150 or 200 million people who have already adopted Bitcoin. <laughs> there's, there's one fund I know of that claims that 53%, I think, of the US has already adopted Bitcoin. But that's not true. That's total BS. Um, and it's a misconception because maybe, maybe 160 million people have ever touched Bitcoin or ever touched crypto. Um, but how many people understand Bitcoin for what it is, which is a savings technology that is the best store of value you can hold today and, and going forward into the future because of its properties of increasing scarcity and the fact that it's underappreciated, undervalued by you know the rest of the investing world. Um, how many people? Will, how many people understand that? Well, there's only four million Bitcoin addresses. That you can see on the ledger, that have 0.1 Bitcoin or more in them, uh, which is to say, at most four million people have stored two thousand dollars or more of Bitcoin savings on chain, uh, and th- you know that means one two thousandth of the world has done this, so you're in the you're in the first in terms of adoption that means you are 0.05% into the total world you know the whole world adopting this thing and yeah you know actually the majority of the world doesn't have $2000 to store but if you think about the wealthy world my math comes out to like we're half a percent into adoption by people who have money to store. Um, And that means that most of the adoption curve is still to come. Um, Most of the world has yet to figure out that Bitcoin is a savings technology that should be incorporated into their portfolio. And you you assume that humans are smart and that over a generation or two, they figure out what's the formula for success in the current conditions or at least in the recent conditions um and that means that more and more people find bitcoin and you know people don't unfind bitcoin so the pattern we see is every four years every having there's hype and there's new developments and a new subset of people are onboarded to bitcoin some of them figure out what bitcoin really is and don't lose conviction through the bear market some of them lose conviction and and they'll be truly onboarded later. Um, but yeah, so I think in terms in terms of your adoption curve, I you know I think hyperbitcoinization plays out as an S curve, uh, which is to say that your potential adopters are a bell curve, and you make your way through that bell curve, and as you get towards the middle of that bell curve, more and more people are adopting um, all at once because that's just how humans are, and that's why you end up with a, a sharp S-curve shape. Um, and we're slowly making our way towards the middle of that bell curve of, of adopters. And uh, it doesn't feel like hyper-Bitcoinization, but uh, on on the human history timescale, it absolutely is. And so if you play that forward 10, 10 years, 20 years we probably get to the heart of that uh, bell curve um and you know i think when you when you think about the total valuation of bitcoin it's gosh right now it's like uh, 300 billion um and gold is a, a 10 to 13 trillion dollar asset and because of you know in in a financial landscape with 900 trillion dollars of assets between all different asset categories, 400 trillion of which is simply looking for a good store value asset, which is to say, looking for places to propagate. You know, people are looking for places to put money to propagate it through time without it losing purchasing power. And guess what? Bitcoin has is the best, um, the best asset in human history. If if that's what you're looking for in terms of its properties, because of increasing scarcity and having a hard cap supply. So people will find that and will continue to find that. And you're starting from a $300 billion base. It's better than gold in that sense because there's 2% more gold being mined every year. And we're already below that for Bitcoin and it gets cut in half every four years. So I think over the next 10 years, we um, get 2x gold, um, which would be a million dollars per Bitcoin. And then interestingly, it doesn't stop there. The mechanics that make Bitcoin continue to appreciate in value keep going for the next hundred years. So, you know, I think the full potential for Bitcoin is something like $200 trillion total, which is $10 million in today's terms per Bitcoin. So I think that, you know, I think we will see where the, the plateau is for, for Bitcoin's full potential, what it reaches. Um, but I think it's on its way to, um, somewhere between a million per coin and 10 million per coin. And that'll take 10 to 50 years, you know? So I, th- I think 10 years from now, more or less, we're hitting a million dollars and then we'll see where it goes from there over the 50 years that follow.
1: Yeah. I really liked what you said about, the idea that we are basically living through hyper-Bitcoinization right now. Um, There's this guy on Twitter, he like runs a a traditional hedge fund. I think his name's like Mark Dow or something like that. And he did another tweet today about how Bitcoin is like the dumbest bubble he's ever seen. And I've interacted with him before in the past. And like the last tweet that he added me in, Bitcoin was $6,000. So we're almost up three X from the last tweet where he was saying bitcoin is dead it's over and it's just kind of interesting how a lot of people kind of that have been in the bitcoin space for a while but like are pushed away from it or don't get it they have this like derangement syndrome where like they think it's over but like the last time they thought it was over it would have been a great time to buy and even if you held and through the next crash you crushed it like you had great returns um and i think he's a great example of we're living through yeah. hyperbitcoinization. bitcoinization he just doesn't realize it
0: and and that type of psychology comes from that that yuppie elite quadrant, right? That having trust in the system and not seeing the point of Bitcoin um, and therefore kind of rooting against it and therefore uh, quite conveniently overlooking the fact that each time there's a bubble, there's a higher high and then a higher low, and that keeps happening. Um, so you, you got to use your senses and think logically about, you know, is, is this a tulip mania, uh, and, you know, for context, the tulip mania was a, gosh, it was like a nine month long speculative bubble that never recovered. So one and done speculative bubble versus a series of speculative bubbles with higher highs and higher lows following a halving event that cuts supply issuance in half and, it's, and that, those mechanics are set in stone to keep happening every four years for the next 100 years. So will this speculative bubble series continue into the future?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and if you think about it, tulips are obviously pretty, pretty bad money. They're not very scarce. You can grow more tulips. They're not very portable. You, you can't send it over a communications channel like the internet. not very divisible other than being down to one tulip. So there's, they they don't follow the the characteristics of money that Bitcoin aligns with pretty perfectly. But I think this is a great place to wrap it up. I think this is a fantastic conversation. I'm sure the audience is going to love it. Uh, Where do you want to send people after they listen to this?
0: Yeah. um, You can find me on Twitter. Um, I I go by Croesus. That was my pseudonym before I came out with my real name. Um, So it's uh, C R O E S U S underscore BTC. Um, pretty active on Twitter. I'm, I'm not great at DMs, but, uh, you can find me there. Uh, and I also have a sub stack now, um, Jesse Myers, uh, where I pretty infrequently putting out, um, Bitcoin educational content and, and on Twitter, if you're interested in some of the work I've put together, uh, I have a pin tweet where, where it's all organized and it's I think a good place for people who are learning about Bitcoin to scroll through.
1: Awesome. Yeah. I'm sure they'll check it out, but enjoyed talking with you. I think this is a fantastic conversation.
0: Yeah. Joe, uh, appreciate Oh, Joe, I have a question for you. Uh, is yeah. Georgia going to win Georgia going to win out? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hope so. We'll see. Uh... I'm excited about it. It could be two years in a row, but we'll, we will see.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think they probably will. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Well, enjoyed it. Um, see ya.
0: Yeah, see you, Joe.